Well, um, welcome to Unscripted. Yeah. Downtown Thanks. Downtown LA. Uh-huh. Yeah. How you doing? Pretty good. Trying to fight a cold, but I'm good. Awesome. Um, so, um, we're really here to talk about Goldie Awards 2018, round two. Um, so tell me about what Goldie means for you. Oh, man. The Goldie Awards means a ton for me because it, it encompasses so many parts of my life, right? So for anyone who doesn't know, it's, it's a DJ battle and a, and a beat battle. A new competition that I started last year um, happens in New York, and um, you know I think part of the uh, the motivation for doing it in the first place was um, even just realizing that I'm in a position where I I I feel like I could you know change the way that battles are perceived at this point in time, and um, you know I have such a like a debt of gratitude for what. The battle scene did for me you know my career was started when i won um those battles when i was a teenager the dmc and other ones too and so i, I know how much that did for me as far as just being a launch pad <clears throat> and um and obviously like what i stand for as a dj and a turntablist is really championing you know the technical and skillful sides of of this art form and um you know for whatever combination of reasons uh it feels like in in recent years and even for a while that branch of djing hasn't gotten as much attention it's like djing itself in general especially people knowing the names of djs and understanding that djs are you know musicians and and artists that's grown and grown and grown but the most skillful djs somehow haven't been getting that spotlight um yeah so a big point of the Goldies was to remedy that, like to, to basically look at where culture is at now and say, okay, now DJs are finally accepted as huge artists. You know, it's no longer a surprise to see, you know, DJ Snake breaking Spotify and YouTube records and Diplo doing the same and Skrillex. You know, I remember when he was on the cover of Rolling Stone a couple of years ago, that was a huge milestone. Um, you know, that level of recognition um is accepted but um and on the producer side you know i think producers are probably more more famous than ever mm. you know what i mean like whether it be a metro Boomin, south side you know murda tm88 cardo all these guys um are, are bona fide personalities people you know even young music fans will follow you know what even someone on the come up someone like kenny beats like a, a young fan will follow whoever's having like is hitting their strides at th that point in time and and listen to whatever music they put out so producers are 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 um you know in the front seat in the driving seat um and even outside of that sounds you know the the level to which there's a legitimate cult that's built around the legacy of the Mad Libs and the Dillas and, and this and that too. I think like that's so cemented and yet still I think that there wasn't really um, an event or, or even just a, a sort of infrastructure that properly celebrates, you know, the producer. Um, and specifically like the... Um, the creative side of the production process, you know, not just the personality, but like how artful it really is, how creative it really is to 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 come up with with amazing beats of different sounds and styles and stuff. So the Goldies was that that was um, the sort of mission statement to go and shine a light 
um, on on the craft itself and on the ones that are pushing the technique forwards. And f- even for me personally, it means a ton because it's been a way for me to to uh, tie a loop between different parts of my career, my life. Mm. Because you know the sort of entrepreneurial and um, impresario sides of the Goldies endeavor is you know that's me using a lot of the know-how that I've developed by uh, running Fool's Gold and doing Fool's Gold Day Off and things like that right so doing Fool's Gold um, and specifically I'd say the Day Off events that's taught me um, how to put together an event in a way where I've learned how to you know sort of control the kind of audience that comes in in terms of um, you know is in terms of even just getting you know the 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 young creative kids that are really influencing kind of the next wave you know and all the things that come with the process of i would even say marketing this kind of event right like these fool's gold events have become the place where people come to discover the next wave of talented artists and everything from the artwork of the posters to every choice and name that goes on a poster or a flyer plays a role in drawing that kind of audience. The audience that's really, you know, um, I mean, I hate to use those kinds of words, but tastemakers and early adopters and that kind of thing. Like that, that is a thing at the end of the day. Um, it's part so, of the DJ culture too, right? I mean, yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, but part of what I love with doing the Goldies is I feel like I'm taking this scene and this culture that's like, that holds such a special place in my heart in my heart because it's the origin of my career turntablism battle dj you know just banging beats on pads and that whole thing and then i'm using my sort of i'm putting on the fool's gold hat that's learned how to market an event and get you know really pay attention to the look and feel of things and how every the choice of every person involved can influence what kind of press attention you get what kind of crowd you get and how to really fill a room and get those numbers of you know what i mean because like the full school events are they do pretty good numbers there's a lot of people there and that that all stems from everything's a decision everything is intentional right so that really understanding the intention and just how far that intention can go so i use that hat to try to bring in a new breath of life into the turntable scene that's that's truly like for me what it represents and my experience even in my day-to-day of like setting up this event and that's the reason why I'm so hands-on and it, and it's become like so much of my mission because I know that I can tie those pieces together and even musically um, to make sure that the contestants represent a, a wider variety of styles and of trends because I do feel like both the the DJ battle scene and the beat battle scene have tended to, you know, you, you tend to hear the same kinds of styles and sounds. It becomes generic. It becomes, or at least it becomes kind of repetitive and it becomes like one type of sort of, one type of uh, sound or, you know, a kind of post boom bap sort of thing. Mm. And it doesn't have to be just that. Like I remember when I had the idea for I was kind of thinking through you know the even just the beat battle and thinking like oh it'd be cool to have producers of different styles I remember thinking like 
maybe we'll get a techno producer in there. And last year, you know, Muscles was one of the contestants and he came in with the sequencers and stuff. And this year we have um, Basic and Nick Hook, you know, again, coming in with these really modular and, and uh, sequencer-based setups. I think that's super exciting to put them next to a boom bap producer and next to someone that's making like... Um, really forward thinking trap with like advanced sound design and shit and just see like I I like the idea of putting that variety and even making sure that there's enough women in the battle like the uh, on for questions of diversity and representation to to really curate that that platter I like the idea that if you make the 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 selection of contestants as varied as possible then whoever wins just really has to have that extra little thing the je ne sais quoi, right? That that is undeniable. Like it's almost to me, it's kind of more exciting to have a battle where there's someone using controllers and someone using turntables and someone using CDJs, um, because it kind of zooms out. Like battles became zoomed in for way too setup. long. Yeah. yeah, on one setup and one way of thinking and certain styles of patterns that everyone did. Like you know, my battle peers and I like when I was with the allies and everything we all stopped battling after 2000 2001 and there's a bunch of amazing DJs that have been that have done amazing things since then and I have a ton of respect um for for all of them anyone that's came and contributed but I will say that I in a general sense I think since that era um since the early 2000s that the battle scene has kind of like zoomed in a bit too much so again, not to take anything away from the DJs that came after us, there's a lot of them, you know, motivate me and da da da. There's a ton of skills there, but in the bigger sense, I think it all kind of zoomed in and became variations of one thing. And maybe in a sense, what I'm trying to say with my mission for Goldies is to zoom it back out because then it's less. It's not only about specifically one technique versus another technique. It's about song selection and style and making sure the sound is on point, like everything, the whole full picture that will make one DJ or one producer stand out. It's, 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 um, the technical shit is super important is, and I'm as geeky as the next guy in, in this scene of ours. And, you know, that, you know, I, I dig that. And that, that was a big part of my foundation too. But over the years, the more I've traveled and I've played different kinds of settings, I've learned that there's more to making a mark than only the technical stuff, right? You know what I mean. That it's that full picture that's important. And um, when you're on a stage next to other DJs and producers that are approaching the whole thing in a, such a different um, vibe than you, then you need that full picture to win. Totally. And and you're going through all of these contestants, all mm -hmm. these uh, applications yeah. personally. Yes. Wow. Yeah, it's a trip. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like to really pull off the the Goldie Awards according to the vision that my team and I had, I've had to do a lot of it. Um, a lot of the curation myself, picking the judges, contacting the judges, tracking someone down, like, you know what I mean? Hitting up the boys noise and Mark Ronson types and being like, yo, we need you at this thing. Like it's important for the bigger picture that we all care about. Who are the judges this year, by the way? Ronson, Craze, Just Blaze, Boys Noise, Venus X, Anna Luno, LP, and TM88. Oh, wow. I think I remembered everyone. <laughs> I think that's it. So that, you know, 
even that selection is super important to me because it's you know I wanted to have different genres I wanted to have you know again diversity I wanted to have a mix of veterans but also artists that are still creating the new sounds um, you know it's important that the Goldies feel like the place where you know the 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 craft is being pushed forward I don't want it to be just because at the actual event I'm not one of the judges at the actual event I'm helping host and I'm just kind of like making sure everything is running right from a DJ's um, perspective from yeah from yeah. a DJ's perspective and from a you know vision and and uh, presentation perspective um, but the 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 submissions it's mostly myself that goes through them and and when when I have it narrowed down to you know let's say 30 to 40 per category and we have to get down to like eight then I send Craze and then we pow out together. He's, oh, yeah, Craze has been kind of my right hand for that, and and then we we uh, we we trim it down to the final eight. Because that allies was the beat down allies. The yeah, battle? yeah. The, with the allies, we had our own battle called the beat down, right. which I believe we did two of. Okay, I think. Yeah, I think my friend um, Blake, he he who also works for us, um, uh-huh. he was telling me that uh, there was a great deal of attention paid to the setups there, and and there was a, a real yeah. approach to it from a DJ's perspective and he said that that was one of the coolest things about it. Oh yeah. I mean that yeah, that was a big part of the vision too. I think like um you know, for anyone that came up entering battles um at least in some of the battles you would get a sense that it was you know, kind of outsiders running these battles. And Sometimes that's okay. Uh, you know, sometimes you need someone that has one foot out, that's one step removed to be aware of how to present this thing to an even bigger world at large and whatnot. And, you know, again, not to knock any of the battles. But I think after winning, you know, with the Allies, we really swept everything. DMCs, yeah. ITF, Best Tax, all these battles, all the different categories. And we felt like we could do... Um, a better job at some of the execution and there was even a sort of like um there was a like a monetary uh like a royalty side to the vision of the beatdown i remember i don't remember if we were able to even carry it through but um for infamous in particular shout out to infamous uh he was always really upset that dmc videos never paid the djs right which is true uh or it's like it's a i mean it's a legitimate thing to be upset about mm. the DMC videos only profited DMC so when we started the beatdown I remember we would say if we make money we'll split it with the contestants because you guys are the performers I don't think we made money though <laughs> um, but it was part of the vision and there was a, a beginning of this um, this sort of turning of the tides of saying hey we can actually do this ourselves you know even at that point and the beatdown was in the early 2000s it's over 15 years ago but already then my friends and i were getting to a point where we felt like we could come in as sort of we're starting to be elder statesmen of the scene even then wow. and just saying all right like hey to our fellow battle djs we'll we'll do one of these ourselves you guys come and enter and we'll we'll make sure it's all tight for you for you all it was fun it was fun we'd started a magazine back then too tableist magazine oh okay yeah tableist was um partnership with 12 ounce profit wow um so that was cool i think we did i don't know two or three issues maybe i'm not sure but I, the, it we tried i think 
you know, in those years, in the early 2000s, essentially like when we all stopped entering the battles and we were all looking at this scene, like in, in a sense, the turntable scene had this really huge boom at the end of the 90s, mm-hmm. right? Like from say 96 to 2000 loosely. And that's when I got into the scene period too. So I, would, I, I always felt fortunate that I came in at a time where the wave was so huge that all I had to do was like, once I became pretty good pretty quick, I was able to also just ride that wave. Yeah. All I had to do was like stay good or keep <laughs> practicing, but the wave was there. And I was so young and I looked so young and there was maybe something about the way I came in that, you know, put me in a, in a position where I could be kind of the face of the new wave. But I, that wave was huge. Yeah, oh, for sure. I think so, there was also something relative about your age, you know, with the other other people that were in, engaged in that scene. Yeah. Seeing somebody, it was like an aspirational thing. Yeah. Oh, you know, I want to be like this guy. He looks young. And, looks you know, like a lot of me. people are young yeah, like that yeah. too. Yeah, because I would watch videos of the battle DJs who were killing shit in the years prior than me. And I learned so much from them and I idolized, idolized them so much. And even when I met them, they were so welcoming to me. But one thing that I can't say is there wasn't really a feeling of like, that could be me on that stage. Yeah. You know, I would watch Qbert or Raider or Melody or whoever and just be like, these guys are aliens. <laughs> Let me try to be as close to that as I can. And I have had a lot of people tell me over the years that when they saw the video of me winning that first DMC, they saw that and they were like, if he could do it, I could do it. Oh, for sure. So that was, I think that was power, more powerful than I realized for a long time. But um, I think um, what I was getting at was um, even then, as we got into the early 2000s, the scene itself started losing a bit of, of steam. And my fellow allies and myself then in those years we were already starting to think, you know, what could we do to carry this forward and to, you know, help even like have a hand in where things go from here on out. You know, going from participants to, you know, um, having agency in it. Mm. Um, and I don't know how far it we quite got with it then because I think inevitably that wind was kind of fizzling out. So we did a few things, like we were just saying, the magazine, the battle. Um, and, but as far as my path, eventually I, I met Kanye and like that became, you know, working with him and playing on those big stages and scratching on those big stages ended up being the path that I took to, to carry, you know, our craft and our legacy into new places. Um, and then, you know, as the story goes, I went from that to Fool's Gold to other things, and I got into production. All these new things happened for me. Um, and I think for all that time, you know, from the moment that I, that I, you know, pretty much taught myself how to produce, and then that, you know, that came with a whole set of challenges, and, um, you know, the scene itself was morphing and kind of like figuring out how to continue finding my place through those changes. I think, like, over a decade decade went by where I had to sort of like um, res- have a little bit less peripheral vision as far as the rest of the of of um, the scene and maybe where I came from or whatever and just kind of like carry it like it's like I had to pack everything in the backpack figuratively and just be like all right I'm gonna just bulldoze forward and like make a path for myself even though it doesn't exist 
And I think there was a point when, you know, EDM wound down, wound down in the last couple of years. And like that whole crazy ride of 10 plus years, sort of, you know, uh, the storm slowed down a bit and I was able to kind of look around me. And that's the setting where I decided to do the Goldies because I was like, oh shit, 10 plus years went by, you know, Fool's Gold survived the decade, which a lot of, you know, which is not a given. A lot of our peer labels didn't. That's very true. Um, and like, I somehow taught myself how to produce and had a few records that did kind of well and <laughs> others not as much, but whatever. But still like, yeah. that was such a whirlwind, you know? Because when you have one record that does well, everyone's like, cool, where's the next one? Of course. And I don't know how to follow up. That's one of my worst <laughs> I don't think anyone Thanks. does though, right? Yeah. That's a, I mean, some people do. Some people are like, oh, cool, that works and they can make seven of those. Sure, yeah. Right? I've never been able to do that. Like, even if you think a heads will roll, the next production that came out after that was a remix for Tiga that was, at this point, is pretty much forgotten and that was particularly underground. So I went from like this pop dance, indie dance, like genre hybrid thing to a super specialized, <laughs> you know, techno remix that no one even remembers. Um, so, but even just dealing with that whole whirlwind, that consumed me for years. And, and you know, even the exercise of like self-analyzing as those things were going on and try to see what works and what doesn't. And if something doesn't work, learning from those and trying to apply better in the future and having to suddenly run a company, having a store, mm. all, this, all these things that I wasn't trained for at all, but I figured out along the way. I think there was, that felt like, a, uh, a, a tornado, a really fun tornado. I love <laughs> yeah, yeah. it, but it lasted years of just like flying by the seat of my pants and just being like, I'm not even sure what I'm doing, but let me just try to do my best and learn from this and learn from that. And it really does feel like in the last two, three years, um, that tornado kind of like became more manageable and I've been able to look around me and think like, oh, well, I've always said I want to do more mentorship and do things like that and let me start doing more DJ workshops and lessons and like, you know, just be as present as I can for the next generation. And yeah, again, that's where Goldies came in. It came from that mindset of like, oof, all right, <laughs> this, this, uh, I've been riding this horse for X amount of years and like, I, I still, I'll never feel like I really know what I'm doing, but I at least <laughs> feel like I can manage myself enough to have, you know, parts of my mind that can think of other things. It's really funny hearing you say that because I think from the outside everyone's like, "Oh, a track, he's got it together. He's the one who's got it. Has had it together since he was 15." You yeah, know, like people think that, but yeah, and yeah, it's, I think every it's it's a challenge for anyone on the inside, for sure. Yeah, yeah. and I yeah. think it, it also just going back to what you said about heads will roll. You know, when that came out, um, at least from my perspective, it felt very quickly after that. Duck Sauce was like this massive thing too. So, yeah, kind of. It's funny to think back though. You know. Hezel Roll is a remix that I delivered literally six months late that the label refused because I was so late with it. No way. Yeah. It's, you got to check. Um, I got to send you the, the box set, the in the loop box set of my oh, remixes because yeah. there's all these stories in it. Hezel Roll, I, I obsessively tinkered with it for so long. You know, because the production of it's not even that complicated, but I've always said that it's harder to make simple tracks. I totally agree. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. And with Heads Will Roll, I, like every fill, every transition, every th like the whole thing of it, I obsessed with it for so long to try to get this balance that really works. Um, and finally, I, I handed it in, and the label told my then manager, they're like, we're already at the next single. Why is he sending us a Heads Will wow. Roll remix? 
And then I gave it to a few DJs and a bunch of DJs started playing it a lot right away. And they came back, the label came back a little later and they're like, all right, we can release it. Like there's something going on here. And even that was the first sort of push of it. And a year later, Project X came out and it was featured really prominently in that movie. Oh, okay. And that really blew up the remix. But that was a year after it came out. That's Over crazy. a year after it came out. And a lot of people remember it as the song from Project X. Mm. And I remember, I, I know all this shit before where like it was already out for over a year and even getting it out was a whole hoopla. So there's that. And yeah, it kind of led into, we actually, we had already started Duck Sauce. Because I, I really, I have a clear memory of playing Armand Heads Will Roll when I finished it. I, mm. I have a clear memory of being going to his apartment um, and being like, hey, I just finished this thing. And he has such a good ear. I couldn't tell that it was going to be bigger than another thing I did. What did he say? I, he just he was like, "This is gonna go" or something. Like he oh, heard dope. it. It's even just I remember he really liked um, the simplicity of like that first verse where it's um, it's just a kick in the in the bass line. There's no snare, no groove elements or whatever. It's just a kick bass line and and her vocal being so prominent. And he was like, "This is fucking huge." And I was like, "I don't know, cool, I guess." <laughs> um, so I remember that. But yeah, duck sauce was a whole thing too. And even duck sauce, when I think about how I'm probably not great at following up. I mean, this is something that we uh, we willfully did, but we followed Barbara Streisand with Big Bad Wolf, which really confused people. Yep, different sound for sure. Yeah, but different. Yeah, different everything. Big Bad Wolf is inspired by like Chicago ghetto house meets right. The Witch Doctor. Like it's it's a uh, it's a weird song. Big Bad Wolf is a weird song. Barbara Streisand is a song that you know they play at 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 uh, Stadium, bar mitzvahs so. and yeah. yeah, but like any like a, a child will like bar mitzvah. Big Bad Wolf, you have you have to be a little off your rocker to like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so Barbara got us all these pop fans from around the world, and it really impacted internationally. And I remember when we put out Big Bad Wolf, um, I would sometimes look at you know comments and shit like that youtube comments whatever how people are reacting oh, no. and a lot of people it wasn't too bad it was, was just good. it was just funny because people were like this is a joke right <laughs> like people are just like this isn't and a lot of those fans didn't even know who duck sauce was they were just you know when you get a song that's as big as barbara streisand you get these sort of you know either young or casual listener mainstream fans who definitely don't know or care what it you know what the names are a track and Armand van helden they don't understand they're just the like, significance no mm -hmm. they're just like that's the group that made that song that i really like and then we come out with like essentially a chicago house record with no melody and you know the same words repeated even i mean you know barbara streisand was a word repeated but big bad wolf obsessively annoyingly repeating the same words a lot of of the new fans were like what <laughs> for sure like, what's this and anyway the first was the first single right yeah. that was there's a lot of similarities between that and barbara streisand and, yeah and it's kind of disco yeah it's disco people wanted to peg duck sauce as a disco house group and maybe that was the first intention but once we got after barbara we we got into this zone of like let's just find catchy loops in any kind of zone and the best way to illustrate that is if, if uh, anybody goes and listens to the duct tape, which was like, um, it's a BBC essential mix, but that we also released as a mixtape. And the duct tape was 
our cutting room floor of track ideas. Oh, cool. And we would go and sample anything. Like it, we, it was like on some Dust Brothers, you know, beat nuts kind of mentality of like, if there's a Italian folk, folklore record uh, that has a cool loop, we'll, we'll, we'll sample it. If there's a Polish prog rock record that has a cool loop, we'll sample it. And like how to go and find earworm in so many different sources, like really on some weirdo, like cold cut kind of mentality. Um, that's what Duxos really turned into. Um, so it was definitely, we, it, we wanted to take it further than Disco House. For us, it was, you know, it was that, it was Prince Paul kind of shit. Yeah. Like, and, and that's what the Duxos album ended up being. That was the vision for Quack was like to take that, that like Prince Paul slash almost Wu-Tang with the types of interludes. I mean, one of the interludes is literally a riff on a Wu-Tang interlude. Um, just, you know, bizarro come into our universe kind of approach. I that, love that stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's a mixtape mentality. Yeah. But I think um, for some people, maybe the album was kind of misunderstood because a lot of, at least a lot of the casual fans were like, oh, these guys made Barbra Streisand. <laughs> like, you know, sort of, uh, you know, what do you, what's those comp uh, compilation? Like the now, uh, now this is what is I... what you call music? Yeah, like... 25? Exactly, yeah. like... But we had those fans from Barbra Streisand. For sure. And those fans definitely weren't checking for the album. But we didn't care. Like, both Armand and I are very um, stubborn in our vision. Art for art's sake. Kinda. Yeah, yeah. Just on some, like, yeah, let's just do cool, weird shit, you know? Because by then, EDM had taken off. Barbra Streisand was pre-EDM. Or right. it's right when the shift happened. Barbra Streisand came out. I... I would argue that it may have been the first like truly viral video of dance of the dance music explosion because that video really took off um but the but edm hadn't fully happened yet and it was it ended up happening in parallel because we were in a bunch of countries we were sharing the top of the charts with um with swedish house mafia one oh wow right and that song is pretty much when edm, EDM happened yeah. happened and and so anything that happened after barbara streisand it was the era of the Avicis and the Alessos and, and the rest of the Swedes and, and uh, also Skrillex and the like, right? Mm. So all this stuff that was hit, that was impacting on such a big level. Um, and we just didn't want to, I don't know if I should say we didn't want to participate, but we, we didn't want to suddenly follow a formula when the thing that worked for us, and the only thing that's ever worked for me my whole musical life is to not really know what I'm doing and definitely not have a formula and just let the ideas flow. And once an idea is there, try to make it as good as possible. And hopefully people share my taste or there's people that like something in my ideas. But I've, I've never been able to be the guy that identifies how to make something that works and that churns that out. That's just, I'm, I don't have that skill. I admire people who have that skill. Would you, would you want that skill though? I don't know, because I'm not, maybe not. Um, maybe part of it, but... I'm, you know, it's, I'm happy with what I've done and the way that it happened. And I, you, I mean, you DJ quite a diverse genres. I mean, we'll get to that later. But, yeah. you know, your your sets are, you cover a lot of genres and a lot of different styles. Yeah. And and is that similar the way you approach production? Yeah, definitely. Um, the That eclectism informs how I produce. I approach my production like a DJ, mm. for sure. Like, everything is based on references and things, little details and artifacts that, that I like in certain tracks. And in a lot of cases, 
you know, even just a style reference of like, ooh, I've ne never made a track that's like, you know, X. Like, um, DJ's Gotta Dance More was literally, I've never made that house song that has someone talking on it. That's a thing that exists. Right. Here, you know, let me try to make one of those. And then I ended up, I ended up kind of making it my way because again, I don't know how to follow a formula. So it, it ends up sounding different enough that it doesn't come across, I hope, as a sort of copycat thing. But it always starts with some sort of intention of like, or an idea of, oh yeah, that's a thing I haven't tried yet. Let me try that. And in actually fleshing it out, I'm able to make it different enough that it feels like my own. That's in a, in a way, a, like an existential kind of sampling way of doing things, yeah. right? And it, it's funny to hear you say that. I think that, uh, you know, th these references come up a lot in, in music and production, you know, uh, Say No Go and Billie Jean, you know, there's yeah. a whole, the story about Michael Jackson loving this Hole and Oates song, and then he, and then they even right. had a conversation about it. I've heard, you know, and oh, cool. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, I like that song. I kind of want to take this reference. And every uh, song's like that, of right? Course. Yeah. And they are different, but there's a there's mm -hmm. an idea that started this new thing. Yeah, and it's always fun for for us record nerds to, you know, to learn that story. To, yeah. To be like, oh shit, wow, that person was listening to that record. Now I get it. Okay, but it's you know, obviously, it's cool when they take it somewhere else. Totally. All right, so we were just talking about, um, you know, your production. Mm. I want to kind of jump back quite a few years. Okay. Obscure Disorder. <laughs> so, you know, hip-hop and dance music is, I'd say, in my opinion, what I know of you. Yes. Would you would you agree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. The, the combination of those has become my staple, yeah. And Obscure Disorder, was that your first production, or was this the Stone's Throw, Ralph Wiggum thing? Um, okay, so to put things... I'm congested. To put things in context, Obscure Disorder was a, a rap group from Montreal that really my brother was producing more than anything. And then um, I became the DJ. And then we kept that going for many years. So uh, so uh, uh, I was definitely a, a part of the group for, uh, from, you know, from the first show we did together and eventually did a few productions too. And that was on... Audio Research, which was the first label that I was involved with. That was, again, my brother and I um, back in Montreal. And Obscure Disorder, as you know, as the name kind of hints, was definitely an underground hip hop group, you know. Uh, and it was in that li the late 90s um, indie hip hop underground backpacker boom, you know. We were just, my brother and I were hip hop heads who loved the ethos, the DIY ethos of that, that underground movement of that era, you know, buying anything that went through Fat Beats' doors, you know, uh, and just looking at labels like Rockus and Stone's Throw and um, Fondalem and BBE and any of those and just really, you know, wanting to be a part of that conversation, mm. literally, like wanting to be one of those. Um, and as far as my first productions, I mean, it's hard to really pinpoint because I, I was messing around with scratch production early on too. Um, so I think the first track that I made was um, a track called Umbilical Chords that came out on a compilation that Peanut Butter Wolf A&R'd for Strength Magazine, which was a skate magazine. So Wolf, I met Peanut Butter Wolf and Cut Chemist when they uh when there was a compilation called deep concentration i remember that i came out that my friend joseph patel put together and wolf and cut were the resident djs of a tour for mm. that comp when that tour hit 
Montreal, myself and Kit Koala, and Koala is like five years older than me, but us, us being the two sort of turntablists of note in Montreal at that time, we played actually the Montreal and the Toronto show of that tour. And right away, I struck a friendship with Peanut Butter Wolf. Um, and he just wanted to get me involved doing stuff. Um, he had you featured on a on his, one of his album, right? You yeah. So the first thing he had me do was this track that I was talking about, Umbilical Chord for Strength Magazine. He had also just signed Loot Pack and Mad Lib. So Mad Lib did all these interludes on that same compilation oh too. I, 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 I really remember Wolf playing me a cassette in his car and being like, yo, I found this guy called Mad Lib and just playing me a bunch of beats. Um, so there was that track. And then, yeah, when he did his album, My Vinyl Weighs a Ton, um, I was one of many DJs who scratched on a song called Tale of Five Cities, I think it was called. And I also released a 45, a seven inch on Stone's Throw, maybe a year later, um, that was called Enter Ralph Wiggum. And again, that was Wolf encouraging me to make a song. I'd never made a song really before these things. So he was, you know, he really played a big influence in that part of my career of just making me think outside of what I thought I was able to do because I was so hyper-focused on scratching and mm -hmm. literally like combos of flares and whatnot. <laughs> and he was like, you should make a song for a compilation. I was like, oh shit, well, well, um, you know, the Scratch Pickles made that Clams of Death song, so I guess I could make something <laughs> similar. Yeah. Let me grab a kick snare and, and cut up a sample and scratch something on top of that. Um, meanwhile, my brother was making a lot of rap beats. He had an S950. And um, I would just watch him make beats. So just by watching him, I was able to observe, absorb, I mean, the basics of production on a little bit more of a proper level of like, even just like, what does it mean to truncate a sample? And mm -hmm. like, you know, how to, what to listen for when you're trying to pick, you know, again, a kick and a snare and a hi-hat to sample. Like, you know, what, what ends up sounding good and what doesn't and, you know, how to get it sample on beat and what goes into the construction of layering beats. So I would just watch him make beats. Um, you know, both he and I had our setups in our parents' basement. So I had my turntables where I would practice. I would usually practice after school and then he would make beats kind of later in the evening. When I would, if I was done with my homework, I would just come back to the basement and watch him put a beat together. And um, the first couple of Obscure Disorder uh, songs and singles were all produced by him and I was just doing scratches but then later on there was um, I think one or two tracks that I, I did the beats for the grill was probably the better one of whatever among the things that I did um, there was a song called the grill yeah so Dave's had a really big influence on your life Dave oh, completely. obviously yeah, yeah. from he was Romeo. also I mean even going back to the very beginning of me even trying to scratch he is the person that saw me and said that thing that you just did is really good and my friends and I can't even do that so I'm not sure how you just did that but I really think that you should practice this every day after school because this could really be something and and if I if if I was kind of you know flaking out or doing something else he would kind of give me a hard time for it and be like hey like come <laughs> home like practice this is good you're you're gonna be good and um you know, now he does DJ sets. Um, for those who don't know, my brother's in the band Chromio, so they might know him as um, a singer and guitar player. In those years, he definitely didn't sing, because I really remember the first time he sang on a song, <laughs> and P and I were like, what the hell? Um, 
but he, you know, he grew up playing the guitar and then taught himself how to make beats. And so just through his musical ear, Dave always had really, really useful feedback for me that was kind of one step removed from the nerdy technicality of turntablism. Because he was able to, he had a producer's ear before he even realized he was a producer. And he could hear me work on something and tell me that sounds wrong. But he wasn't a scratch DJ, so it wasn't about like, hey, your second orbit is messy. He would just be like, that's sloppy. And then I might be like, what do you mean? I've just spent two weeks learning this pattern and I feel like I really got it. No, it's good. And he'd say, no, it sounds wrong. But he would just say from, a, you know, again, from a musician's ear, he'd be like, I don't know, it's messy. I don't like it. Not and funky it would, enough. Yeah. So it'd be up to me to kind of be like, ah, fuck, okay. And try, try shit again and try to figure it out. And then maybe the next day he'd be like, how about now? And he'd be like, yeah, that's, that's good. I like that. You know? Or he would hear me practice routines and be like, uh, you know, this is really repetitive. Like, take this part out. I'm not sure what it is, but just take it out. It's not good. Or he'd say like, well, what, what would it be like if you sped this up? And then I would be like, I don't know, put the pitch on plus eight and try it. And it'd probably, he'd probably be right, you know? So those, that kind of feedback from early on, it really helped, um, you know, it, it, I'm sure it, it helped accelerate how quickly I learned. A lot of people are like, how did, you know, people will hear the numbers that I started scratching at 13 and that I was world champion at 15. And they'll Seems say, well, did, yeah, it's like, how did you learn so fast? And, you know, big part of that was my own crazy focus. <laughs> but another big part of it was definitely Dave kind of keeping me musically on the right path, I guess, where, you know, I think if you're just working by yourself, you can sort of go on a tangent that, you don't realize isn't good and spend too long on that. Oh, but yeah. if you have someone else who's like, nah, 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 that, that thing is not worth your time. Go back to the thing you were doing yesterday. I feel like that cuts out. It, you know, it takes the fat out. Totally, <laughs> it yeah. It just keeps the, the good meat there. And so, so Dave, did, he helped you a lot with like, even when you, when you went to your first battle, was oh, yeah, he 100%. instrumental? In that? And then he was, you know, I've always, I've noticed. He was my coach. He would just be like, he would just come home and be like, all right, what, did, what do you have ready at this point? You know, the battle's in three weeks. What do you have? And I'd be like, well, I have this much. And he'd be like, he'd be like, yeah, you need a better intro. And then he would just leave that to me. And I had to figure it out, you know? And then he would watch a few days later and be like, yeah, that's cool. Um, and just, I don't know, give me another piece of feedback. My, the funniest anecdote of Dave helping prep me for battles before my first battle ever, which was the Montreal 97 DMC. You know, which I didn't know then, but that would lead me to world championships. So I won that, which led me to the Canadian finals, which led me to the worlds. But I'm prepping for my first battle. And my brother is thinking like, he's just sort of thinking of things that I might not think of. And he's like, well, what about if your needle skips? And I was like, well, I don't know. It happens sometimes when I practice and I just figure out the groove it's supposed to be on. And I just keep going from there. And he'd be like, are you sure you're like, prepared because that might happen it's like you're going to be on a big stage it'll be different than when you're at home and then he sort of like stuck with that that idea and i remember he was like i'm going to make you practice uh how to recover if your needle skips wow so i would start doing my routine and then he would bang on the table wow <laughs> yeah and i'd be like ah fuck and i would have because the whole thing is like if your needle skips you don't know if it went forward or backward or groove sure yeah. so you can find it but you don't want to take too long with trial and error so we did that for a little while where I would just do a routine and he would go like that and I'd be like, fuck you. And I'd have to find it and keep it going. So he, yeah, he played a huge role in, in, in all that. 
that's really interesting. <laughs> and and then he he got into funk and and dance music. Yeah. And if, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed around that time that a lot of that stuff you started doing with the French, like Ed Banger guys and stuff was kind some, of there work. was. Chromio started a, definitely a few years before I got into electronic music. Okay. Um, Chromio started around 2002. Um, it's a big departure from Obscure Disorder. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And But the thing to keep in mind is David P. were in bands in high school before any of this, uh. too. They were, they were friends in high school, and they had some other bands just with their other high school friends. And that was already kind of a funk band. That mm. sounded like Jamiroquai. Oh, cool. But it was also like in the sort of acid jazz era. Of course. Right? So we listened to like Incognito and the brand, brand new heavies. And like, I just bought a Giant Step t-shirt the other day. Anything that was on Giant <laughs> Step. Like that era. That's, their first band started like that. Then Dave started making rap beats. P never stopped liking funk. So the only rap that P liked was basically G-Funk. <laughs> Either <laughs> that or... Huh? Hence the vocal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either that or like New Jack Swing or something. But he was obs- like, by the time it was 94, 95, and we were listening to like Illmatic and, and fucking Tribe Called Quest, P was still listening to uh, um, Kid and Play and like <laughs> Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. <laughs> oh, cool. And a little bit of, of West Coast, like G Funk rap. So Dave does makes rap beats and basically like turns, goes into like the sort of boom bap lane and P's still in his funk world and um, a few years later actually prompt by a conversation with Tiga who's also from Montreal right. and Tiga was like Dave your beats are good you should, like, you should make something else that's like outside of hip hop um, and Tiga already had his label Turbo Chromio started on Turbo that's it right. started with Tiga saying telling my brother I want, I want to put out a project of yours that isn't your rap beats. And Dave was like, can I bring my friend? <laughs> and then him and P started making like a sort of newer version of funk that was produced on electronic equipment and whatnot. Um, and meanwhile, I was still doing mostly hip hop. And so our, you know, we were still very involved in each other's music. And, and right from the very beginning of Chromio, I was always the first person that would hear any demos and kind of help determine what the keepers were and all that kind of stuff. And he would still kind of keep tabs on my DJing. But we started going in our own lanes a little bit. And by 2000, maybe five or so, five or six, even, I don't know, yeah, 2004, five, six, I was like coming to visit him in New York. He had already moved to New York. I would go to like these little downtown parties and hear like all these mashup sets that were really creative. And I was like, oh, cool, different genres. And legitimately like the advent of Serato, uh, Scratch Live. Scratch Live came out in what, 03, right? Yeah, uh, 03, 04, I think. Yeah, 03, yeah. 04. So, and it's exactly in, uh, in 04 that I started getting interested in playing more than just boom bap and doing more mashups and finding a few electronic records that actually were interesting to me. And, you know, that led to me really making my own sonic identity. It came from a lot of exploring through DJing. Mm. Like DJing was always the driver in anything else that went on in my career. So it went from like, oh, cool, there's other things I could do with DJing and I could find like an instrumental of some old 80s record that somehow mixes really well with the percolator, but also with an outcast, you know, very fast record that otherwise won't fit in my set. And just like thinking about DJing in that 
respect, which was all new for me. And the fact that Serato had just came out, so I, I was working digitally, so if I had an idea for a different type of track to combine with another thing or a mashup or whatever, it was as simple as me, you know, either going on LimeWire or like doing <laughs> oh, it, yeah. you know, going to another friend and saying, hey, do you have that file? As opposed to hunting down a vinyl record. So that accelerated the experimentation. And all that experimentation and also discovering some of the newer um, electro that was coming out of Europe with like, you know, the early Switch stuff and Ed Banger, Sebastian's early productions, meeting Medi, um, Medi educating me on a ton of house music. All that, like, all that led to the, the, you know, the sound of my first couple of remixes, which were suddenly kind of electronic. Mm. You know, that came from explorations as a DJ. And you did the Dirty South Dance mix, mm -hmm. which was also that too. quite a, I mean, that was a pretty big turning point for DJs, like, having that. Yeah, and it was a big turning point for me. I'm glad it affected other DJs, but for me, that was... The thought process was, was like, you know, after years of not caring about any kind of electronic music and thinking that all of it was corny, aside from like maybe one Basement Jack song and one or two Daft Punk songs that I remember seeing the videos of in Montreal. But for the most part, I'd be like, that's not my thing. Suddenly, I'm discovering, you know, even on blogs and shit, I'm discovering electronic tracks where I'm like, this is cool. This is like grimy. There's like bass lines the drums are dirty there's like chopped up vocal samples like this is this speaks to my interests mm. right so i'm like i want to play this and i want this to become kind of part of my sets but people know me as a hip-hop dj so like how do i connect the dots and i started grabbing rap acapellas and putting them on electro tracks and you know making sort of mashup versions of songs so that it would feel like you know the eight-track version of playing um a, I don't know, Etienne de Crissy track or a whoever track, a Simeon Mobile Disco track. Like if I put some sort of rap vocal on it, suddenly it makes more sense. At least that was the thought process coming from me. And uh, Dirty South Dance became like that, like the manifesto of that, like the, 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 the mission statement of that. Once I made a few of these little edits, I was like, all right, there's going to be a mixtape of this and this will be like, this is where I want to take my sound. And that became the blueprint for even like the early sound of Fool's Gold and, mm. you know, when I met Kit Sister and started producing for her or with her, um, all that stuff was influenced by my experimentations as a DJ. Now, speaking of that, Fool's Gold, you, you signed Kid Cudi's first put out Day and Night. That's yeah. the first record yeah. that I ever heard of him, mm -hmm. probably the world. Yeah. And then the Crookers remix mm -hmm. is a great example of that. Like this, here's a really trippy, like hip hop, vocal cut yeah. and then now you've got this banging electro remix yeah. that just blows up like it's yeah. like it's comparative to like the heads will roll remix it's like it's become the song the version of the song that people know i mean the thing that's really particular about day and night is that both the rap version and the crookers electro version blew up in parallel because mm. heads will roll you know with all due respect, and I, I revere the yeah, yeah, yeah's, but most people don't know the original version. Mm. Or a lot, like people outside of their direct fan base, maybe I should say, casual sure. listeners generally don't know their original version. It's, it's a trip that, hap you know, once in a while there's a song like that where the remix kind of goes even further. With Day and Night, I, I would still say that the original version is, is 
hugely known too influential it, yeah it was just it was incredible to see both versions blow up at the same time in different obviously on different charts in different territories um that was nuts and to think that crookers literally went on the fool's gold myspace page and the profile song at that time was day and night because it was the single we were just about to put out and they you know mes- messaged us on myspace and we're like hey can we remix this can you send stems and wow. it was originally a free download it was just like a that's right yeah 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 it was just it, it was a free download Felt and like came. everything was free then <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's true but i i love the i love the um how organic that process was it was not it wasn't like a manager or someone at a label thinking we need a remix really nick and i were the label we weren't even sure what we were doing and just by you know the 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 connections of myspace crookers mm-hmm. Hearing this thing and having an idea, a strong enough idea to literally ask for the parts, right? It's usually the process goes the other way around. It's usually the artist or the label that goes and seeks out a remix. Although, to be fair, uh, Heads Will Roll was similar. I heard um, It's Blitz, the album. Mm. <coughs> and I remember telling my, my manager, get me the parts for that song. I have an idea. Wow. And uh, my first idea sucked, but the second one was the, was the keeper. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard something in there. Uh, you've definitely heard many remixes of your remix of his role. Yeah, it's now crazy. Yeah. Now it's become just like, at least like the section, the little, the, the highlight reel that you hear in a lot of festival sets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, you've collaborated with a lot of people, like, you know, obviously Todd Terry with the DJs Go Dance More, yeah. but, you know, you've worked with Falcons, you've worked with, all sorts of people mm-hmm. in, in your career, prom night and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. You, is that something that you like as a producer collaborating yeah. with people or yeah. more so than so, working solely alone? Um, I don't know if it's something that I like more, but I definitely, I think collaborating is a process that works well for me because a lot of times, I'm not the guy that's in the studio every day. I spend my days doing God knows what, just like all looking after a bunch of projects. And some days I'm in the studio and some days I'm coming up with a routine and some days I'm just on the flight, but I'm not the guy that's in the studio every day. So when I walk into uh, a session, whether it's mine or a friend's or whatever, a lot of times I'll have ideas and a certain perspective that'll be different from the person who's there in that room every day. So that co- collaboration process tends to work because I, I usually walk into a room with like, a couple references and, and two or three ideas like hey we, why don't we try something like this or something like that and then we just pick something um, and I'm very aware of my own limitations as a producer like I'm um, I've tried to make my producing and my engineering as good as I can get it over the years and even early on I was really obsessive with like getting myself on the level that was you know good enough to be you know competitive or at least something that you could release and play next to the track of someone whose sole trade is being a producer. I wanted to be able to, to, to at least, uh, you know, be comparable to that. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm a DJ first and foremost. And um, on, the, on the producing side, I definitely hit roadblocks. And I definitely, there are certain sound design things that either I don't quite know how to do or I could do if I really spend many days on something and then someone else can do it in literally 15 minutes. Mm. So I end up working uh, with people on tracks because they, like those roadblocks get eliminated. I can come with ideas and if I'm like, all right, I'm hearing a baseline that's sort of like this. Here's a reference. I'm, 
I think I kind of know how to make that sound, but it'll take me seven hours. And then someone else might just be like, hold on, I have that sound. <laughs> and we could just follow the ideas. And um, yeah, there's just certain things that I'm not good at. I hate doing like song structure, like adding the whooshes and the <laughs> transitions and yeah. all that kind of shit. So I'm, I'm happy to get someone else's perspective on that. I think in terms of like the little moments of the song, like, all right, I know this happens somewhere and that happens somewhere and that happens somewhere. But like, the art of um, orchestrating the song for it to flow really naturally. Again, I can do it, but I'm so slow with it. Yeah, it takes a long time. I just, I'll build it out and I'm like, I'm not sure. Let me come back to this tomorrow. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I like to collaborate. Even on, so even on some of my own songs um, that are just under my name, sometimes if you look at the credits, there'll be a co-producer. You know, DJ's Gotta Dance More um, was made with Corey Enemy. He really helped me with um, We All Fall Down also. Um, and there's other stuff that I just do myself. Again, like I, when I say that I spent six months on Heads Will Roll, that's what happens when I try to do something <laughs> just by myself. I can do it, but I'll drive everyone around me crazy. So after a while, it's like, do you guys really want me to put you all through this? Because I'll get it done and it might even be good. It might. <laughs> but I don't know. It's I'm still, DJing is where I feel most natural. And making songs still feels like a sort of fun exercise to get certain ideas out. I don't think I could ever be the guy that just has 40 beats that are just there available. You know, when someone hits me up, sometimes like artists that I am a huge fan of will be like, yo, send me something. I want to cook up that let's work on something in the back of my head. I'm like, shit, I got to come up with an idea. Like I'm just not sitting on shit like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely seems like an all encompassing thing production. Like it's, you yeah. just do that every day to get good at it and sit on beats and stacks yeah. of beats. Um, so speaking of like you're busy, you're really busy. You're always traveling, you're working, you've got the Goldie Awards, you've got a record label. Yeah. You know, you're making productions and remixes and putting people's albums out. Mm -hmm. I, one of the things that I, I think doesn't get talked about a lot is is just like how people manage their time, how people yeah. manage their life. And, and someone who's like in your position who's done this for like 20 years, right? Yeah, like, yeah. How, what, is, what are some of the big learnings that, um you could kind of yeah that's important and like it's weird because like i i really don't like saying that i'm busy but I, <laughs> I i i am and it's like i can't run away from that from that but i i have I have gripes with that word and what it's come to the way it's used in society now because it's become an answer to like how are you like mm. you know what i mean like and even outside the music world if any two people catch up how's things oh things good you know busy busy it's a way to answer to how are you I, I don't like that it bothers me and i think for a long time as i sort of taught myself to do a lot of the things that i now do you know there was a sort of learning curve where at first i would sort of go like the complicated route and I'll, you know i think as i've grown into a lot of these roles i've also really tried to like figure out um, I don't know, more efficient ways to do certain things. So I try to remove some of the busy, you know, because sometimes being busy is my enemy because sometimes being busy clouds my brain with like all these tasks that I still have to handle. And I know that the creative part of my brain is just like not really available. Like there's days where I really need to have the mental space to brainstorm. It could be for the lineup of an event that we're doing. It could be for new ideas for a set, it could be for anything. Uh, and it's, on some days it feels like a luxury to even have that mental space. 
You know what I mean? Like, it's hard. It's not something I can do in movement sometimes. I need to be, like, just in one place for, like, longer than an hour to just let the stress thoughts kind of, like, vacate and, like, let the stillness come in a bit and just think. And that feels like such a luxury sometimes. And so I'm uh, more and more I try to just take out the clutter and be able to do that the most because that's the part that I think I it's important that I, I do those things more than some of the mechanics. So all this to say in a long-winded way that I, I don't like the word busy. But um, as far as how to manage time, I'm not sure if there's like a secret to it, but I will say that um, I've tried to really learn from my own mistakes over time where there was definitely a period in my life where I, I pushed myself so hard that it didn't help me, mm. you know? And, I, you know, sometimes I look back at parts, even just the years when I was learning how to produce, that in itself, I really put so much pressure on myself because I felt like the A-track name stands at a certain level as a DJ, right? And so if I'm going to put a track out, it has to live up to that. And that's a lot of pressure because I'm supposed to be one of the best DJs in the world. So I can't put a bad song out. I just, I can't. Right. So how do you, but I, I didn't grow up as a producer. So I have to teach myself and like just get good enough that I felt like it was, um, that it was up to par. It's a great deal of pressure. Yeah. And I, I put that pressure on myself and there'd definitely be days where like if the ideas weren't coming or if there was one of those roadblocks that I was talking about, I wouldn't really let myself like, stop or breathe until I got past the roadblock and and through time I kind of figured out that that's that's really not the best way and that obviously mm. like it seems obvious but like walking away stepping away whatever it may be exercising taking a walk around the block something that's when the idea comes inevitably it's not when I'm this close to my screen <laughs> yeah. but I spent a lot of years this close to my screen you know uh, uh, trying to get through just yeah whipping myself to to, to work through shit and um you know, I really only started going on vacations as I got closer to like the th the the 30s, maybe. Um, I'm 36 now, and there's still years. There's literally years that go by where I don't go on an actual vacation. But like, just allowing myself to take a break, and like, what those words really mean, allowing myself, because I, everyone around me would even say like, "Hey, you can stop." And I, I was the stubborn one that would be like, "No, nah, this isn't. I'm not done with this." thing and I'm already late so I can't stop actually and so yeah really just learning that when you get to that very stubborn level of pushing a little too too hard that's not when the, the solution will come anyways and um, I'm still learning as far as like how to balance things out because a lot of people ask me about like you know travel and jet lag and things mm. like that and like the main thing that I've learned with that is you can't not be jet lagged yeah. You know, like it's so funny if someone will be like, oh, you must be used to it by now. No. Nope. <laughs> You're never not exhausted. Yeah. The only thing that I'm used to maybe, or I hope, is like the only habits I may have gotten a little better at is is things that I can do to counteract that fatigue. And uh, actually, I had someone say something to me earlier in the year that's like one of my favorite things that anyone said to me in years. Um, I was, I was at an acupuncturist and this lady was asking me about what I do and what my life is like and da 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 and just trying to understand kind of like what to work on even for herself what to work on on me and once she got a sense of you know the fact that I you know 
am self-employed essentially and all these other things and and I, I'll work myself until I fall asleep on most days and that kind of thing. She, the way that she gave me advice, she said your input has to match your output mm. and you're giving too much output and it's not you're not you're not going to feel right until you allow yourself more input. And I really really love that and I try to say that to as many friends as possible because we're all in that same field where like especially when you're a performer there's so much of what we do is output. And not even just when we're on stage, when we meet the promoter and the opening DJ and da-da-da, you're like, you can't close yourself off. But you might be exhausted and just not even want to talk to people, but it's, it, that's just not the way to be around people who are graciously bringing you to their city. You've got to at least like, have your game face on. You're like, hey, nice to meet you. How's it going? Da-da-da. Like that, that game face, um, you know, not to sound... Uh, um, spoiled or whatever but that is tiring for sure it's an effort it's it's it feels like a physical effort sometimes to have the game face on i think anyone um, can relate to that yeah you know, in right? their daily life yeah you even know, if someone tired, even yeah. someone that works in retail can relate to totally. that anybody can relate to that so between that the energy of performing an output of energy that comes on a more on a sort of fatigue level that comes with traveling jet lag getting sick eating different kinds of food all that kind of shit like all that is it's energy that comes out of you so I think anybody can think of this input thing. It could be anything. The input could be going to the museum and getting your mind off of things and, or, and thinking, why do I feel nice when I see this painting? I wonder if there's a way that I could do something musically that will give someone that feeling and it makes you think of your music differently. Or it's just like family time. Family time is input for sure. Like for sure. Like, I don't even, I don't have kids, but when I go see my friend's kids, that I feel like it literally fills me up with something. I don't even know what it is, but something, right? Uh, or, or it could be like literally like when I go get a massage, I feel like I'm 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 a car that goes to the shop. Yep. Like the body's a machine. Hundred percent relate. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then that, that's why I've gotten so much into nutrition too, because that too I had I had um someone that helped me with nutrition who was like his analogy was you're a high performance Formula One car. It's the 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 um, fuel that you put in your car is super important. If you put this fuel versus that fuel, you're not going to perform the same. And when once when you understand, when you like literally feel on like a cellular level, like on such a microscopic level how that's true, you start paying attention to what you ingest. That's input, right? Totally. And and um and he was like the guy who said and told me that he was like you need to go to the pit every x amount of laps. You have to. Maybe that's your massage, maybe that's acupuncture, maybe it's literally just a bath with salts whatever, but like you're there's a physical thing that you have to give to your body um, that's akin to the car going into the pit every X amount of laps. It, it's funny you say that too. I've, I've had a conversation with some friends about how, you know, DJing, it's, it's I mean, we, ha we have competitions. It's, it's in a lot of ways akin to a, like a, an athlete or a sport. 100%. I can, I can relate to Olympic athletes, yeah. Right. And, and you know, we, my friend who, you know, happens to train for football, he's like, you know, I get up every morning the way it, he had a friend that was coming out to come see me play and mm -hmm. he was like, you know, he's got to go home early. He's got to get up for his practice at 6 a.m. so he yeah. can't stay out. Yeah. And I was like, you know, that's dope. Like, yeah. that's cool that this guy's recognized that he, this is a really important priority for his body to function the way he needs mm -hmm. and he's, he's putting, like you said, the, the inputs matching the output. Yeah. And I feel like DJs in a lot of ways are like that. You mm -hmm. know? And, and everything you're saying seems to be... Yeah, and, and the same way if you think of the car analogy, like... There's certain cars that 
for some reason you can still sort of drive them even though they're on empty and like technically it looks like they should be exploding or dead but it still runs (laughs) but at one point it really just explodes and the human body can do that like if you and i'm not even saying that the way i live is i definitely am not saying that the way i live is better than the way someone else lives and i'm not saying that you know whatever partying is good or bad i'm not even putting a judgment value but i've definitely observed a lot of human organisms in my life for sure and i know that there is such a thing as that other sort of modes of operations where it looks like it's all output all the time and it's just partying and and not not stopping but there's there there is an equilibrium point that exists there that can sort of run at least for a certain amount of years i've never done that myself and there have been like the big party guys so i don't even know what how that works but like that keith richards thing that like somehow you look at it and you're like (laughs) by the laws of physics this shouldn't be yeah that's there there's a thing that can work there yeah but i you know i just chose to go the the uh, another route with it um but i am kind of fascinated with that with that model (laughs) i'm like i don't understand how that works but i've seen enough people do it that it it there's a it can sustain in some sort of way. Yeah. Speaking of kind of physical things, DJ's <laughs> got to dance more. Yeah. Like dancing and DJing. Um, yeah. Tell tell me about that. Like I, <laughs> I feel like there's a really good conversation to be had there. It, yeah. I mean, I'm a bad dancer, but uh, <laughs> the reality is that line is just you know that title comes from one line that's not even the hook. It's it's something he says in one of the verses that Todd says in one of the verses. But I love. You know, it's so awesome to get taught on that record, and I love his perspective because he's um, he's aged so gracefully, and he he embodies just the spirit of what DJing really should be and should always be and always has been, and we shouldn't forget what those things are. And that I, you can we can interpret it right. I think what it probably means is that you know you can't get too um, hyper focused with any of it, and there has to be a feeling. If the feeling's not there, then none of it really works. Um, and it, so I think that's kind of, to me anyways, what what that title means, aside from being a funny line, is is this idea that, you know, there is a feeling that comes with the music that, that we all cherish and love. And, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe it just hits your body a certain way. You can't even really ex- explain why it's there some nights, it's not there another night. Um, and also just like, having fun right like i think djing has become this huge industry and um you know people drive themselves look crazy looking at social media and there's it's easy to be made to feel like you have to do one thing or another thing because someone else did it that way or that whole thing like i think the title dj's gotta dance more is kind of an hopefully some sort of antidote to that to say you don't really have to do anything per se um you gotta have fun first, and fun is contagious. When, when, you know, when, um, when the spirit is there, hopefully that draws people to you. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Shay Track. All right. Thanks. Um, yeah, we'll we'll have this up soon. So cool. yeah, stay tuned.